What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today my guest is Andy West. And he recently wrote a book, which I absolutely loved, and it's called The Life Inside. So check it out. Andy West is a philosopher. And what he does is he teaches philosophy to prison inmates in the UK. And the book is just so interesting, right? Like I, I've told this story before, but I really got into philosophy uh, as part of like my uh, addiction recovery, right? I started having questions about like morality and just, you know, all these different things. And that's what led me to philosophy. And it's kind of like helped me look at the world a little bit differently, right? And what I love about philosophy is like, depending on who you talk to and ask these questions, you're going to get different answers, different perspectives and everything. And in Andy's book, like, I, I just absolutely love it because he shares different stories of him teaching philosophy to these inmates and their perspectives on things are just so, so, so interesting. So in this conversation with Andy, I ask him about some of the topics and how, you know, his perspectives might have changed a little bit. And, you know, we also talk a little bit about his background, his childhood, like he's had family members who have been in and out of the prison system. He touches on like some personal aspects of his story in the book as well. And yeah, some other things I ask him about is like, you know, the UK prison system, you know, because something I've, I've discussed here on the podcast with different authors is, you know, the prison industrial complex here in the United States and how things are. But you know, we also talk about, you know, these ideas of like forgiveness and can people change and, you know, how, how morality plays into the laws that we have, which ultimately send people to prison, like an example, right? Uh, marijuana, you know, <laughs> like, is this something that's a moral failing that someone should go to jail for? And we just, we kind of talk about all these different things. And uh, most importantly, we have a lovely little section of this conversation dedicated to free will. And I think that's very, very important when talking about the criminal justice system is we talk about free will because, you know, different aspects of our lives and how we grew up might affect the decisions we make later on in life. So anyways, uh, I had a blast talking with Andy. He's super, super, super insightful. He has some great stories, great perspectives. So make sure you head down to the description, follow him over on Twitter, Make sure you grab a copy of his book. It is out now, The Life Inside. It's a phenomenal book. And before we get started, if you're not yet, make sure you are following me over on social media at The Rewired Soul, mainly over on Twitter and Instagram. This way you don't miss any upcoming episodes. I also love chatting with all of you, getting book recommendations, having conversations about things going on in the news and all that kind of fun stuff. So make sure you're following. And if you're not yet, but you should be, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Andy West about his new book, The Life Inside. All right. Hello, Andy. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Yeah, great. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. I've been listening to your podcast the last couple of weeks and really enjoying it. Awesome. Glad to hear that. Yeah. And I really enjoyed your book, which we're going to talk about in just a sec, because anybody in my audience, I'm sure some of them are familiar with you, but for those who don't know you, 
can you introduce yourself real quick and a little bit of your uh, your background? Okay, yeah. So my name is Andy West, uh, and I've just written a book called uh, The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family, and philosophy. Uh, and it tells two stories. Uh, one is about uh, all the philosophy classes I've been teaching in prison over the last five, six years, uh, conversations about things like time, hope, freedom, power with people in prison, often conversations that are really pertinent about situation of confinement or oppression or just reflection, remorse, those kind of things. And then also, um, my dad was in prison when I was a kid, as was my brother and my uncle. So, um, there's all of that kind of in the subtext yeah. as well. And there's all of that stuff coming through the philosophical conversations as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's one of the things I, I loved about it. it was it was kind of cool, like hearing both of these these types of stories going on, and like you know, not a lot of authors when they're writing about one topic get you know kind of open about their own experience. But you know, with with your experience, because you talk a little bit about you know growing up and your family and everything, like what drove you personally towards philosophy? What got you interested in the topic, like when you were younger? Um. So I'd left school having failed pretty much all of my, like we do GCSEs here when we're 16, mm. failed all of them except for two and kind of scraped a pass, C grades. And, um, I didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest. Um, uh, you know, my mum called me on that day when I got my results and said, congratulations. It wasn't like I'd kind of underachieved or anything given yeah. my, my background, but, um, I really didn't know what I was doing, but I went to an open day at a college and there was a, um, a philosophy teacher there. Mm -hmm. He was just asking these, these kind of questions, which, you know, I was a very alienated teenager. I was very at odds with the world. I was living in, in a, in an emotional and mental state that was incredibly convoluted. Mm. And that's just such a philosophy is just you know, it gives such a warm embrace to all of those kind of things. So, you mm -hmm. know, like asking questions about how do we know if anything is real or not, or how mm -hmm. do we know what is really good? Like, is that just a, an invented thing or, uh, how do we know if we're free or determined or whatever? They really spoke to some of the kind of struggles I had as someone who whose brother was away inside, uh, mm -hmm. or, you know, wondering these questions of like, well, am I going to repeat this cycle? Am I, am I going to kind of inherit the sin of the father all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So it just made me this space to be as obsessive and argumentative and yeah. as focused as I could. And it, it just, it just lifted me out of the sun. Like just the fog of alienation just come mm. it thinner just to be in there i could just see more clearly somehow yeah no that's interesting that's that's definitely one of the reasons i i started getting interested and in it. it almost helped me even though you asked so much and there's a lot of like you know uh analyzing it seems it helped me also get out of my head and you know start changing my perspective on my own difficulties and struggles like after i got sober and everything like that and you know i got super super interested in it and you know i'm curious is that like did any of your personal experiences, is that what led you to wanting to go into prisons and teach this and like, because it helped change your life? Like what inspired you to go down that path? 
Yeah, I mean, um, I first visited the prison when I was six, Christmas Eve, visiting mm. my uh, brother inside. And, uh, you know, I think once you know about that world, once you've glimpsed just the edges of it, as I had, you don't really forget about it, you know? And many people will go through life not seeing that world, not visiting people in prison. And so it remains, prison remains an abstraction or a cinematic drug to them. But to me, it was really a preoccupation from a young age. And these questions about freedom, time, power, they just seem so relevant to mm -hmm. the prison world for me. Uh, like prison here, we had, um, you know, when the first prisons were, were built, they were built around a kind of monastic ideal of um, these kind of strict, like silent regimes where you had to live uh, in total silence. And the only book you had to read was like religious mm. So they were actually houses of reflection uh, in, in, in sort of how they were conceived. It turns mm. out it didn't, you know, they're not very reflective places because you're so caught up trying to survive those settings that you yeah. can't really kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're entirely, they're, they're so, the deprivation is so intense and the violence is so intense that moral growth is kind of almost impossible in there. But so it seemed like a very suitable place to, um, mm -hmm. to be going and asking these questions and, and a place I couldn't really forget about. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I, I, you know, get curious about because, uh, you know, here in the United States, we have, you know, this like prison industrial complex over incarceration. Like I'm a recovering drug addict and I know a lot of people who have been in and out of prisons and I was just, you know, lucky. Right. I recently learned about, you know, moral luck and all that fun stuff. And, uh, and yeah, but anyways, um, you know, with so much going on in the United States and I'm always reading about thinking about talking about like prison reform, like how is prison over there? Because I guess I'll, I'll frame it this way too. Here, it seems like there is no, uh, no real intention to rehabilitate people, right? It's kind of this circular thing, you know, they don't really learn anything inside. Like, you know, there are people who come in kind of like yourself and everything. And if you're fortunate enough to do that and have some life-changing experience, cool. But for the most part, people get out, they don't have any opportunities They come back in. So like, what's the prison system like out there? Like based on what you know, better, worse, how's it going? Yeah, um, I must confess I've never been to the States um, or to any prisons there. So I don't, I, yeah. I see what I read and, um, you know, uh, online and uh, Netflix and things like that. Yeah. And I was as well when I was, uh, was growing up. Um, so, so I'm 36 now. Uh, I was six when I first visited my brother in prison. The population has more than doubled. Mm. in that time and and the general population hasn't doubled so um and it's a it's a very similar pattern actually to what happened in america in 94 you had the crime bill signed by democrats uh you know people trying to win votes from the like democrats people on the left trying to win votes from the right by promising a tough crime approach yeah exactly what labor did here under tony blair uh and we had uh, the introduction of an indefinite sentence come in under that. Um, and if you look at our political debate today between the two centrist parties, they're both just promising to outdo each other with punishments. So mm. there's this, you know, it's, it's, um, 
a way of winning votes for both parties and they're both just upping the ante on it. So in terms of numbers, we've, you know, we're, we've got, uh, over 80,000 people in prison uh, here, which for a country in Western Europe is, uh, very high. It's one of the highest. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, that there's, there's reformist, uh, movements and, uh, with our abolitionist movement is a little bit more embryonic than yours. It mm. takes a lot of instruction from, um, American writers and thinkers, but it's, um, but it's growing for sure. So there are signs of hope, but the, the, uh, a question for me is the mainstream is becoming more and more punitive. Um, are the abolitionists and the reformers, are we, are we kind of growing the margins at the moment or are mm-hmm. we affecting the mainstream? Yeah, it's, it's weird. Like when it comes up, it, it sounds, you know, scary. Like I've had some authors on here who are like abolitionists. Like they're like, we need to just get rid of all of this, you know, do like kind of community policing and, you know, helping out in communities and all these other things. And I think that I, I personally think that really, you know, scares people, right? Like they just imagine like people like running around and just going crazy. It's a pure anarchy, like that movie, The Purge or something like that, right? But, you know, um, like from my experience, a lot of people, you know, don't realize how many people go in there for low level crimes. Like here, we're trying to like legalize marijuana and everything. And there are people who have been getting time just for, you know, smoking and or having it. And here in my particular state it's legal which is even weirder so yeah it's all it's all kind of crazy and i'm curious like like you working with prisoners like what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions you've seen or if you like talk to someone someone meets you they're like hey andy what do you do for a living you're like i go to prisons like what are some of the things that they think about people in prison that aren't so true i mean i think lots of things really uh you know, there's, there's plenty of true crime dramas about serial killers and, yeah. uh, you know, middle Netherlands hammering murderers and things. Uh, whereas I think crime, violent crime, drug related crime, a lot of it stems from, uh, you know, sociological stuff like income inequality, um, mm-hmm. what's going on in schools, what's going on with social workers and stuff like that. It's not, it's not individual pathology so much, but a lot of the information we receive, it is, um, about, um, certain individuals and, you know, if people are afraid of certain, uh, kind of offenders, uh, then you can create, um, uh, you, you've got license to kind of, um, make them feel as secure as you want to. So you have to build mm. more prisons and more fortified prisons and tougher prisons and tougher sentences, whereas yeah. You know, I think most people would just benefit from a bit more nurture and care and support, uh, in yeah. prison, like punishment. I mean, on that question of like, what do most people get wrong about prisons? Growing up, I said, you know, I was very kind of angry, very alienated. And one of the things was the public's misconceptions about prison. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I felt really kind of at odds with the world. I think one of the things that writing this book has done and talking about this book has done, I kind of, I, I want people to understand what prisons are like as much as I ever did, but I do feel a bit more forgiving of the public themselves just because I, I think it's more the media that 
Yeah. You were disseminating information because it's a closed world. You know, there's a great big wall around prisons. We don't have access to it. Mm -hmm. We're just impressionable to what we're told. Um, so I've sort of redirected my anger, I think, to, to, you know, those who were actually communicating the message of who's inside this place. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of like a, a subtext to the book, but I'm hoping, you know, people see, because you tell a lot of stories and conversations you have with the people, you know, inside and everything like that. And, you know, one of the, I think what I found the most fascinating about the book was just when you'd be having conversations and bring up different philosophical, you know, questions or topics or whatever, and their perspective on it, right? Like I come from the addiction world and it's interesting seeing like how, you know, people trying to get sober or have been sober, how they perceive situations versus like other people. So like, what, like, what have you, what have you noticed? Like coming from like, you know, your, uh, your schooling and everything and then talking philosophy with prisoners, how is their perspective different? or like the way they kind of see some of these different topics that you teach about? I think it really varies. Um, one thing I say at the beginning of the book is there's no such thing as the prison or the prisoner, that every prison is its own kind of unique set of conditions, like yeah. high security prisons that have been built within my lifetime, have, you know, wide corridors, uh, um, square edges, everything's like fluorescent, leading <laughs> kind of extra surveillance. And then I work in prisons that are 200 years old and oh. you know, crumbling and full of cockroaches and rats. And, um, you know, just architecturally, they're different. The, uh, sometimes, I mean, most people in prison are from kind of working class, underclass communities, but if you're in like. Uh, an urban prison, like in, in, uh, Northeast London, you're going to find a lot of people of color in there. If you go to more rural areas, you're going to find a lot of white working class people in there. And, and so they each have their own flavor. And then mm. I think one of the things philosophy does is, um, it kind of reveals the individual a bit. If you ask someone a question about what does home mean, what does freedom mean? Uh, um, you know, what do you feel lucky about? What is luck? Do you believe in luck? you start to really reveal, uh, the individual, um, to answer your question though, the one thing that does surprise me, maybe it doesn't surprise me, but maybe it was challenging to work with in a perverse way is people's positivity. Oh yeah. Uh, people, you know, I suppose I went into prison as someone who had kind of had a brother in prison a dozen times and I just thought these were dehumanizing institutions and that the people in there deserve to have their suffering kind of recognized. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people in there don't really want that. I think, mm. uh, I mean, people will complain and whatever, but actually it comes through in the luck chapter. People will find ways to feel positive about almost anything. Yeah, you know, real grateful for the fact that uh, they have a single cell rather than having to share. Uh, they yeah. can feel grateful about uh, the fact that they're not in prison in the country that their father came from, where you know you're just putting a shipping container. Mm -hmm. There's a uh, someone you know feeling grateful that uh, he's in prison because it safeguards his family from him. Mm. Uh, you know, and 
I, I see a lot of stoicism in prison. And yeah. I don't just lift up a lit, I mean stoicism in the Seneca and Marcus Aurelius yeah. of like, how can I reframe my situation mm-hmm. to look at it positively? And I, I you know, they were, it, it made for an interesting tension between me and them because I just looked at that situation and thought, oh my God. And a lot yeah. of, I met a lot of people who were always trying to make the best out of it and yeah. had a different attitude to the situation. Yeah, that that's really that's really interesting because one of the one of the topics that just kind of comes up in, you know, all of the culture war nonsense is you see people getting really offended for other people or feeling bad for them. And then if you talk to that community, like you're kind of explaining with people, you know, inside, like sometimes, you know, that's where they're they want to be or they're grateful for it. And and it reminds me of, you know, when I got sober, I had nothing but just some of the peace and just not having to seek out drugs or, you know, waking up every day and going through these withdrawals, right? Like I had like three pairs of clothes, no money, couldn't see my son. I was in another state and like, but I, I started becoming like grateful and they taught me to practice gratitude to like, Hey, even if you don't have much, like, what are you grateful for? And that, that really shifted, you know, it's interesting too, because I went through 12 step programs and you mentioned like stoicism when like years later, like I was, probably four or five years sober when I started like getting into philosophy. And as I started learning about stoicism, I'm like, wait, this is a lot of shit they taught us in 12 step programs, but yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. And I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. This is my jam. Right. And, uh, I'm, I'm curious, like when you see, um, you know, this kind of, uh, attitude from prisoners, is that, is that something where like, just from what you've seen, is that more like older prisoners teaching that to people who just came in? Or is this something that kind of like develops from within with a lot of people? You know what I mean? Like, I'm curious what that is. Is it lessons? Cause like for me, it was people who have been around teaching me, but I'm wondering if you're just like in there, if you just like kind of say, Hey, it's part of human nature to just make the most out of what you have, you know? Yeah, that's a really good question. I haven't thought about it before in terms of age and sort of being younger and older. And uh, I mean, stoicism is. One of the foundations of stoicism is accepting the situation that you're in. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, like, you know, if you're 21, 18, 19, 20, 21, and been sent to prison, uh, a, a lot of young guys in prison are like, you know, I just have to not get caught next time or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas if, if you're, you know, doing heavy time and you're in your forties and fifties, then perhaps Perhaps there is just the conditions are such that you are just more likely to accept where you are. Mm. Um, I, th- I think one difference between younger men in prison and older men in prison is that young men go into prison and survive it by uh, pumping their chest out and, uh, you know, uh, escalating things if anyone disrespects them. Yeah. Or, like proving that they can look after themselves and proving that they're not to be messed with. And so it makes for a much more like violent atmosphere. Whereas I think older men, there is a kind of resignation there. And there's a, the thoughts is what much more of detachment that you keep yourself to yourself. You don't cross anyone's boundaries. You don't. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be in a situation where things can escalate or start fights. You just yeah. 
you just retreats. Um, and so prisons that work in young offended prisons and prisons with lots of young people often quite volatile, whereas prisons with older populations are just a bit more dreary and detached and dumb. It's a, it's a different ambience. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so something, something, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about while reading it too, and just like the way you intertwine, like your personal story, tell a quick story, right? So, um, not only am I in recovery, my mom's in recovery, right? She got, she didn't get sober until I was 20 and I grew up with so much anger and resentment towards her. And why couldn't she, you know, stop for me and all these other things, right? Then my own addiction bubbles up and I, you know, develop my issue. And anyways, when I got sober and as I, you know, educated myself more about addiction as a whole, like biological, social factors, you know, psychological factors and all that. But anyways, uh, you know, I started to forgive her a little bit more, right? Realizing like, hey, maybe she didn't decide this. Maybe there were things that led her to this. And, you know, I'm a big psychology nerd, but that's why like I fell into like philosophy. But I realized like a lot of things from, you know, uh, childhood for example leads people to where they are so anyways like i had greg caruso on here and we were talking about free will and all that stuff and that's one of the reasons why you know i have issues with kind of our our criminal justice system because it's it's putting a lot of blame on that person so i'm just curious like with your personal life experience right and working in prisons how how has your perspective if it has shifted at all on like free will right like these people making their choices or is it something that they didn't have as much control over as many of us think they do you know what i mean yeah i've always been um so the free will and determinism discussion i think is the most compelling for me it's mm -hmm. it underlies everything and you know i remember my philosophy teacher presenting it to me uh when i was a teenager and it just grabbed me by the throat and it hasn't really let go. And I think part of that is, um, having a brother who was addicted to heroin, you, you see kind of what determinism would look like if it were nakedly revealed to you. Mm -hmm. and, uh, someone who's really lost control, who is in the throes of something much bigger than them. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I, I. I had to do two things growing up. I had to accept that that was what it was. Mm -hmm. And that there was this like deterministic cycle happening there. And yet I needed to, to break the cycle. I needed to get myself out of that world, which relied on a certain amount of volition or agency or effort. Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like I had to believe in determinism and free will at the same time. Yeah. Um, where am I now having to win prison? I think most people in prison are in the throes of something much bigger than them, uh, again, uh, be it socioeconomic, uh, be it, uh, to do with having dangerous desires that have arrived in their system without any choice, then kind of, you know, kind of bad moral luck as I talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, the issue is that a lot of people do time 
uh, and survive that sentence and try to get something out of their sentence by taking responsibility. Yeah. I had a conversation with a prisoner recently who was saying, uh, we we're talking about free will and determinism and she just said, well, I just believe in just taking responsibility, just, just wholesale, you know, just no, yeah, no, but no, just, just do it. And I suppose that's the, you know, I, I, I'm really sympathetic to Greg Caruso's work. I'm, I'm a free will skeptic myself, I would say. And mm-hmm. yet, while that's my metaphysical position in practice, it seems very hard to divorce ourselves from responsibility agency mm-hmm. like that. And I think that's, so I think there are two challenges to, mm-hmm. um, moral responsibility. One comes, uh, in the form of moral luck, loads of stuff happens to us that's outside of our control. Uh, some of us find ourselves in bigger dilemmas than others, our personality, our character, our circumstance, you know, uh, and the other challenge to moral responsibility comes from determinism, which is like saying, even when you think you're free, you're not mm-hmm. now moral luck to me means that we can still have responsibility, but we just have to be a bit kinder and a bit more yeah. open and curious about what people have been through and circumstances and situations. Determinism, accepting that says, well, actually I kind of have to split my intellectual metaphysical position from my like way of living day to day. And yeah. I have to look at that split divided state. And that's tricky. That's hard. Yeah. No, this is, yeah, this is something I could talk about all day too. So here, so here's what messes me up, right? So, you know, I was, I was an addict for so long and I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't understand addiction, right? Like part of addiction, I'm sure, you know, you mentioned your brother and I'm sure a lot of people in prison and everything like that, like I couldn't stop and I couldn't understand why, no matter how much I wanted to stop, I couldn't, These thing, this thing had a hold on me, right? But then I got sober, I got a little bit of clarity. I, you know, physically went through that. Then I started learning. I started learning about the work you got to put in. I went to 12 step meetings. I had no job. I started going to one, two, three meetings a day, right? I was just soaking up the knowledge. I was listening to all these stories. I was learning all these things. And they said, if you do A, B, and C, you have a pretty good chance of staying sober, right? So now I have this knowledge, right? These people are telling me, and now it's up to me to put in that work. I did it and I stayed sober. But what happened was I became this very like, like you have control over your life, right? Like I put in the work, I stayed sober. And then at about three years sober, I started working at a drug and alcohol treatment center. And that's when I got really confused because I saw people who would put in the work. They would do the exact same thing I did. And then they'd relapse, you know? And I'm like, okay, wait a second, right? So that's where I get into this weird space. So I guess part of it, and I'm curious your thoughts, is like, part of me believes, kind of like what you're saying, like we kind of got to separate and like believe and, you know, and all these other things, like, and like, for me, it's like, once you have the knowledge, once you have the tools, right? Now, how much responsibility you have? Because it's, it seems like before you have this kind of like almost excuse of ignorance, you know? But I have a 13-year-old son. If he did something dumb and hurt himself or whatever, and then I educated him about it, now what's his excuse, you know? 
can he just say, oh, everything, you know, is determined. I, I can't, you know, there's my genes, there's my, my brain chemistry, whatever it is. But even still, you know, because I try to talk to people and say, okay, now that you know, maybe you're struggling with addiction or depression or anxiety, here are your options. There's the medical route. You go, go to a doctor, get medications, right? There's a therapy route. You go get a therapist, talk to a psychologist. So now that I've provided you with the tools, how much is up to that person to do it? Because I understand the fear of people just saying like, hey, I took my hands off the wheel. I don't have any control of this. You know what I mean? So I guess the short way of asking this is like, once people are educated on these things, do you think the free will conversation changes a little bit because they have more knowledge? Yeah, that's such a... Um... That's such an interesting question. There's in the book, I, I talk about, um, two people in my class who have a question about how if they, they, they've come to prison, they've been in and out of prison since they were teenagers and now they're middle-aged. And one of them says, we're, I'm more guilty now for my crime mm. than the same crime I committed when I was 18. Yeah. And of course I. I get his logic that he says, you know, now I know the consequences. Now I know what life is about. I know I've been educated and things like that. And yet I still do it. So I must be more guilty now than before. And yet there's also this kind of other intuition in our little position to that, which is like, yeah, but you'll be, you've been brutalized by this prison system. You know? Oh yeah. You're, you're, you've, you've been visited by fresh traumas since then. And, you know, uh, this is, you know, prison can, can make things worse and make growth harder to achieve. So in that sense, you know, I, I think it's very complicated and, um, <laughs> sometimes, I mean, we're having this conversation actually at the moment here in the UK, because, um, there's some new rule has come in that restaurants have to list the calories uh. in meals. So last month we just went into, you know, whatever your favorite restaurant was. And it's like, oh my God, does that have like, <laughs> it's just yeah. a salad. Um, and there's a question now about like, because people are educated about these things, mm -hmm. does that mean that the responsibility then lies with them as consumers? Yeah. to eat in a healthy way or whatever. I, I, I think, you know, to some degree it does. I also think that people, people who are very stressed, uh, who work too many hours, who don't have enough help with childcare, who mm -hmm. are in full-time work, but still are in poverty, uh, because of our stupid cost of living, uh, and rent prices here in London, you know, if you're really, really stressed. You want to eat salt and sugar and fat. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's, that's just physiological. The body just craves those things under stress. Yeah. Um, and we live in a society that is, creates a lot of unnecessary stress for people. So yeah. as much as, as individual agents can be educated, we also need to, you know, provide a, a world in which it's easier for people to make good choices. Yeah. No, and that's, that's another thing that messes me up because, uh, you know, you're mentioning like, you know, them listening to calories and everything. I, I don't know if it's a law here in the United States or it's an option, but a lot of, a lot of places are starting to do that and have for like, 
you know, X amount of years, but I, I remember going somewhere recently and they didn't, but anyways, anyways, uh, yeah, from what you're saying, like, like I said, like, I, I love learning about like psychology and all the research behind it. And when Aaron from, uh, embrace the void podcast was on here, we were talking about, uh, people in poverty. They've done numerous studies where people who are in this scarcity mindset, right? Barely getting by, they're using up so many cognitive resources that they make worse decisions, right? So if you are, if, if, if in the morning you're just like, okay, how much can I spend on food to feed myself, feed my family? Will I have enough money to, you know, pay my bills? Hey, can I put, uh, you know, fuel in my car? And you're just thinking constantly, 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 right? And then you've, you've drained your brain so much that you might spend kind of recklessly because you don't have as many resources, right? So, so again, we've kind of put them in a situation Right. Because here in the United States, it's a huge wealth and inequality problem. But anyways, now it's like, based on what we know from psychological research, how much free will do they have when it comes to how they're spending? If this is how their brain was designed, the brain is trying to like, you know, be, be careful with its resources, you know? So that messes me up too, because, um, you know, me, you know, 10 years ago, I was barely, I was barely getting by. I, uh, you know, when I got sober, like when I moved back to Las Vegas, I lived in this really terrible air part of town right i had to shop at the dollar store and i could you know so i get because now i'm comfortable as hell i am living a good life i don't have to worry like my bank account when the bill the bills are on automatic pay i don't gotta worry about it like that's crazy for me you know i recently wrote a piece about how i have like a good credit score now it's nuts right so i can look back and understand these types of things but you know, I'm, I'm wondering, since you're kind of in and out of both worlds, do you think the public perception of free will is, is an issue, right? Because I look at it, I'm like, the way just the average person, or, or you mentioned like when politicians or the media scares people about felons and stuff like that, like, it seems like they, they, like a lot of people don't really take that into consideration, how much is outside of their control or the structures or systems or whatever it is. So based on your conversations with just, you know, normies, <laughs> how do they see free will and like responsibility for the most part or on average? You mean, um, people outside of prison? Yeah. Like an average person, like when they talk about a prison, they're like, no, that person made the decision. Right. Or they see, you know, an overweight person like myself, even though I try to exercise and eat well, and I'm vegetarian, they're like that person is their fault that they're fat. You know, like, it seems like that's like the default for humans is to put all the blame on the yeah. individual, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. In a sense, that sort of mindset, it's quite like the student I described in prison who said that you just, I just believe in personal responsibility kind of no matter what, no matter yeah. who else was to blame or whatever. It's like, um, you know, there's, there's in, in this sort of philosophy debate, we talk about compatibilism, the idea that, uh, free will and determinism are compatible in some way. And mm. there's a, there's a, a type of compatibilism that tries to make them metaphysically compatible, but there's also another type of compatibilism that says, uh, yeah, determinism's all true. We don't really have free will or it's very unlikely we have free will. Um, 
but out of moral necessity, we have to believe in free will and personal yeah. responsibility. Um, and I think that's probably where most people are without elucidating it or whatever. I think that's probably like most people will, will be open to the fact that, okay, yeah, uh, many people in prison uh, grew up in uh, the care system, which, you know, is, is really, really rough and increases your chances of abuse and, you know, it all comes with, um, so many challenges. Um, and yeah, okay. People are suffering with addiction or poverty, or, you know, they are living in a racially unjust system and they're more likely to be mm-hmm. uh, imprisoned, be black or brown. Um, but there has to be consequences or, but there has to be, yeah, there has to be some accountability just because there has to be, yeah. um, which for me, you know, I understand the kind of pragmatic thinking there, but it doesn't solve the, the metaphysical mm-hmm. head fuck that free will and determinism really yeah. puts you in. Uh, yeah. 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 That's where, uh, it gets, it's kind of, it gets kind of weird too. Like when I talked with like Greg Caruso, cause I also had another author, Michael Schellenberg on here, who's very like, Hey, we need to get addicts, you know, we need to, you know, uh, punish them. Right. And like, you know, and then sometimes like there's, uh, you know, people like Gregor, I talk with, uh, you know, abolitionists and I look at my own personal experience and experience working with other people where we did need some accountability, right? Like when I tell my story, I often say like, I had to lose everything before I actually did something. And I've seen far too many people, like there's people where they have uh, families who really enable their behavior, right? They're just like, hey, here's money, here's, you know, whatever resources, all these things. And I've noticed more often than not, like if I said out of a hundred, like 95 of those people who got everything, you know, they went back out and did it again because there was nothing to worry about. You know, so that's why I'm like, yeah, there has to be some accountability, but then it's just like, okay, but how much, you know, is this level of punishment, you know, is this too much for, you know, the crime? And I guess, speaking of that, uh, I'm curious, I don't know if your perception on like morality, uh, has changed at all working with prisoners because a lot of laws are based on, you know, uh, the way we see what's right and what's wrong. Right. Like, for example, I was mentioning uh, the the marijuana laws here in the United States. Right. Like, I'm like, OK, uh, you know, I can drink all day long and we're totally fine with that, even though alcohol leads to far more deaths. So, like, I always look at the laws and I'm, I'm asking, too. And that's something I guess philosophy has helped me with is just asking questions like, why do we do it this way? Why is this? Why do you see this as bad? So just working with prisoners, talking with prisoners, seeing why they're in there in the first place, or even the way they see morality, has that shifted your, your opinions on morality at all? Or what have you noticed while working in there? Yeah. I mean, some people can end up in prison because they're trying to honor their own personal morality that doesn't, Mm. um, you know, chime with the state's morality. So, you know, it might be to do with some kind of you know, honor or loyalty to a gang or something like that. Yeah. Um, providing, you know, a lot of people want to, I've met a lot of young men who have abusive stepfathers and just think, well, if I could provide for mother instead, you know, then I could, I could make her happy. I could make, create a happy family. You know, this, 
there's a there's a value system there. There's a morality there. It's just um, it's just that's not recognised necessarily uh, when you imprison someone. And I, one thing that has got me thinking on the question of morality is shame. Mm. This idea that you can, uh, I mean, my personal story, I think is so much about, you know, in the book, it's so much about inherited shame, kind of sins of the father shame, uh, and then also a kind of survivor's shame about, uh, not going to prison when my brother went so many times and trying to kind of get beyond that shame, uh, searching for a liberation from those forms of shame. Um, but I think prison is still, you know, it's very atavistic, really. It's the idea that we can shame people to change their behavior. We can, you know, stigmatize them by making them prisoners, yeah, uh, criminal records, all that kind of stuff. Um, taking away their identities, making them wear certain clothes, like all, all the rituals of shame are present in incarceration. Um, and you know, if you're like a behaviorist psychologist or whatever, then maybe you sort of see like, mm -hmm. uh, some logic in that. But what I noticed coming from a family, you know, very working class family was people already feel so much shame yeah. in that world, you know, yeah. and they're very habituated to it and they're very, they've already got a strategy for dealing with it. Okay. Um, and you know, in some cases it's just a resistance to shame, like a kind of Teflon resistance, Yeah. Like, you know, um, or just being deliberately shameless. Yeah. Like I think, like, a third of the book is about my uncle who's been in and out of prison since he was a teenager. And, um, I just think he's a really hard person to. <laughs> because, um, you know, for better or worse, it's like, you, you can't be stuck in that identity that, you know, poverty, uh, living in a certain corner of East London, uh, will kind of, uh, put upon you. Yeah. Yeah. You just blew my brain up. That's something I haven't thought about <laughs> in a while because yeah, I remember like I, I hated myself for so long. Right. And you know, it's something a lot of you know, addicts deal with, like, I, you know, I was my worst, uh, critic, not even critic, just like I shame myself constantly. And like you said, there's this kind of numbing to it. Right. Yeah. And the things like, especially when you're caught up in the throes of addiction, the things you do to get those drugs or the things you do because of your addiction, like, like, what is this system going to do to me that I don't already feel towards myself? Like my, my friends, my family, like my own mother, you know, I wasn't allowed to see my son. Like you think, you think doing this to me is going to make me feel worse than I already do. So that's another part of it. Cause it's like, like, is it effective? You know, uh, uh, you know, I had, uh, you know, another philosopher on here and we're talking about online shaming, right. And like, is it effective? No, like we don't see it, you know, working. Like, does anybody like get mobbed by a bunch of people online and say, you know what, I'm going to change. No. Like you feel attacked, you get defensive and all mm -hmm. these other things. But I guess speaking of shame, because one of my favorite stories or one of the stories I found most interesting was when you were teaching uh, about the story of Sisyphus, right? And the conversations about, you know, was Sisyphus, you know, miserable because of, you know, his punishment of pushing this boulder or was he like having fun doing it? Can you kind of 
explain that story a little bit? Because I'm sure you could tell it much better than I'm attempting to right now. Yeah, so this this uh, the story of Sisyphus, which Camus, the French philosopher, uh, kind of reinterprets, and then I was connecting that in the book with with a story from my uncle. So Sisyphus is um, a rebel. He uh, the, the he he grasses one of the gods up. He snitches on, on one of the gods. At one point, uh, they want him dead. When death comes to get him, he manages to trick death. He literally cheats death. Sorry, death comes with his handcuffs, and then Sisyphus says, "Your handcuffs are so cool, man! Like, show me how they work." And then he's about to cuff Sisyphus, and then Sisyphus says, well, "Show me how they work on you. Ch- chain your wrists together." He he cheats death, and eventually, death does get him. But he manages to black his way out of the underworld for a day. So he's he's cheeky, rebellious. The gods want to crush that spirit because uh, uh, it's humiliating for them. So they put him in the underworld and he has to push a boulder up a hill and then it rolls back down and he pushes it up and it rolls back down and so on into eternity. Uh, now what Camus says is Sisyphus, even there, is heroic because instead of being broken by this exercise, uh, he uses it to build himself. So mm-hmm. even though he knows the ball is going to roll down the hill, he's not hoping for it to stay up there this time. He's not, he's not, uh, hopeful in any sense. He knows the futility of it. He does it, uh, joyfully. Mm-hmm. He pushes the boulder up the hill with happiness. And that's an, a further act of defiance. You know, the thing that was supposed to crush his spirit is actually building it. Um, and I've always, you know, I read about that story, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, uh, during my philosophy degree and it's, it's bold and it's courageous. And, you know, after you finish reading Camus, the myth of Sisyphus, you have a, a swagger in your step for a few mm-hmm. days, going to take on the world, but, and then it just kind of faded out of my memory. Um, but my uncle, I was talking to him about a time when he was in prison, when he was 15 and. Back then we had these, what were known as short, sharp shock regimes mm. where uh, teenagers were put in prison, sometimes for very small crimes, like stealing a, a crate of Coca-Cola cans or whatever. Yeah. They were like treated to the most like intense regime of physical labor and punishment uh, in the hope of like correcting them. And he was at feeding time, as it's known in prison, uh, with be told to stand to attention outside his cell door and then march down to collect his plate of food for dinner. But if he just stood with his hands in his pockets and just kind of swaggered down uh, to get his food. And the guards would punch him in the stomach. They would uh, shout at him, holler at him, but he just kept swaggering. He refused to march. There was kind of a rebel mm-hmm. as well, I think. Um, what they did was they covered his plate in salt. So that by the time he actually collected his food, he just had to scrape this layer of white coal off the top. And he still refused to march. So what they did then is they put him in the segregation unit. And in seg, there's nothing there. It's just a concrete ledge that you sleep on. Every morning you wake up, the guard comes in and hands you a shovel. You dig a hole, you go out to the yard, you dig a hole eight feet deep. End of the day, you fill it back in. Next day, hole eight feet deep. Yeah. And you just do that. 
And I, you know, I kind of grimaced when he was telling me this story, just thinking, you know, like, that's who I was when I was 15. I just would have been crying, you know, or yeah. I would have lost it. I would have swung a shovel at someone's head. And he just said, I just loved it. I just pretended I loved it. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, when they came in in the morning, uh, the officers and they handed me the shovel. I just spring up and say, brilliant. We're digging holes today. I love digging holes. Yeah, no, no. And I was like, did you love it? Or did you just pretend to love it? And he said, yeah, I, I loved it. I pretended I loved it. And I couldn't really kind of get to him, you know, I couldn't really get yeah. to who he was in there. And, and it left me very curious. And again, it's that like positivity you find in people in prison yeah. that can be baffling and counterintuitive and uh, you kind of have to get your head into, into that way of thinking. Uh, and so that's when I then go into my classroom and I ask men about Sisyphus and whether they think he was a hero. Could you yeah. imagine Sisyphus happy in the way that Camus wants us to? Um, so trying to bridge philosophy with prison and the yeah. real together. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. Like, you know, just. Just getting into that mindset, it helped me out a ton when I was going through like really rough days. Just like, hey, no, I do love this, right? And then like my brain would kind of follow like my smile and my actions and everything like that. And it's like, did I? I don't know. Sure felt like it. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't like putting on a smile and I was actually miserable in my head. Like I eventually came to like enjoy certain things. But I, I only have a couple more minutes of your time, Andy. And I got to ask you because this, this is the first time I've heard uh, about this kind of like thought experiment slash puzzle confuse the hell out of me and i'm curious if there's an answer or what your thoughts are it's about this damn arrow all right so there's this no, arrow no. that gets shot towards the target but it only goes half the distance right and then it goes to half the distance of that half the distance of that and then half the distance forever does it ever hit the target yeah so this is zeno's arrow so if you have a target here and the arrow here zeno says that before the uh, arrow could hit the target, it has to first travel half the distance. And you go, yeah, okay, sure. I get you. But then uh, before it can hit the target again, it has to travel half the remaining distance. You're like, yeah. And then half the remaining distance and half the remaining distance. And no matter how close it gets to the target, it will have to travel half the remaining distance again. Uh, uh, Aristotle said that problem only arises if you enumerate everything. If you don't enumerate everything, you don't have to worry about this problem. But <laughs> where I use it in my book is uh, when I told the men this story, they all kind of groaned and they were like, oh, you know, this, this paradox, this problem, like they didn't see the point in it or they found it maddening or <laughs> all, kinds of, all kinds of responses. Um, but then somebody said to me, well, on his army, he had a lot of tallies. And he, he said, uh, at the end of each month, he used to tally, uh, like with a, with a tattoo gun, uh, mm -hmm. like jailcraft tattoo gun on his arm, or oh, I've done a month of my sentence, or oh, I've done another month of my sentence, I've done another month. But he said, he'd always look forward to doing the tally. Mm. And when he did it, he's feel really depressed afterwards. Cause he's like, I've got to, I've got to get all the way down my entire row. Mm -hmm. So he then went to doing it instead of every month to do it once a week. But that kind of just made him feel even more depressed. And so he just gave up. And yeah. I think that's maybe, you know, people doing time, sometimes enumerating that time, sometimes counting it 
it's yeah. the strongest way to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I dig it. Well, Andy, I absolutely love the book. I believe it's out everywhere, but tell everybody where they can find the book and where they can find you if they want to keep up with your work, your next book that you're going to write, if that ever comes out. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter tweeting about philosophy, uh, creative writing a lot as well at the moment, and the prison world, both in the UK and just everywhere. I'm just a kind of prison nerd. <laughs> um, and I'm at Andy W Philosophy, or just if you search Andy West, uh, you'll, you'll find me. Uh, and my book um, uh, is available, yeah. Uh, everywhere. Um, I, I have a link, uh, to world of books on my link tree on my Twitter page. Mm. So that's, I know they do free shipping worldwide. So beautiful. I love it. So yeah, thank you, Andy, so much. I know it took us a minute to schedule this, had a blast. So yeah, thanks again. And maybe we'll do this again sometime. Great. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andy about his new book, The Life Inside. I, I love talking with him. He's he's such a cool guy, and I love hearing his different, you know, takes on all these different subjects regarding, like, you know, prisons, you know, just people we interact with, you know, punishment, morality, and, you know, these weird little thought experiments like the arrow <laughs> stuff that he brings up, you know, because like, that was another thing I really enjoyed about the book was there there's so many different, like, philosophical examples that he brings up in the book that I was unaware of, and and like, as you're reading these stories, you get these like nice little, these little uh, things to think about along the way. Super interesting. I absolutely love the book. So again, make sure you head down in the description, follow Andy, grab a copy of his book. It is out now, The Life Inside. Absolutely phenomenal book. All right. But before I let you go, make sure you are following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. I've been doing some content over on TikTok too, at The Rewired Soul, little mini book reviews here and there when I got some time. If you want to follow me over there. If you're new, make sure you're following the podcast. If you want to help out, share this episode. Share it with friends, family members, whoever. And if you got two seconds, make sure you leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. But a couple other ways that you can help support the podcast. One, become a paid subscriber over on Substack. It's $5 a month or 50 bucks for the year. You get all of these episodes a day early and you help out the podcast a little bit and what I do. All right. But other than that, you can also head over to the rewiredsoul.com if you're interested in learning more about my story of addiction recovery, or I've written some books on, uh, you know, mental health and things like that. That's available at the rewiredsoul.com. You can pick up one of my books. And there is also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Taking care of my mental health is one of my top priorities. And BetterHelp Online Therapy is a service that I've personally used, and I absolutely love what they do. So they're affordable. Uh, it's online, so it's super duper convenient and you work with a licensed therapist. So if you're interested in that, check out that affiliate link for better help online therapy. But again, another huge thanks to Andy for taking the time to come on the podcast. Make sure you follow him and grab a copy of his book. And yeah, for all of you, uh, have an amazing rest of your day. We have some great new episodes coming out with people like David McRaney, Lindsay Fitzharris about their new books all sorts of cool stuff. So make sure that you stay tuned. All right. But until then, I will see you next time.